Okay, chapter 18 is altered mental status, strokes, and headaches. Altered mental status has many causes and can place the patient's airway at risk. And that's one of the main things that we're going to be worried about when we're dealing with altered mental status is ensuring that we're able to protect that patient's airway or the patient's still able to protect their airway. Early recognition of stroke is critical for proper care. And we'll talk about those signs and symptoms that we're going to be looking for that are going to indicate uh, stroke. And the headaches should be considered a serious symptom that could be caused by an underlying condition. Most of the time, headaches are going to be completely benign, not life-threatening, and not even really treatable for us at the pre-hospital setting. But in certain situations, headaches can be a symptom of a life-threatening emergency. So starting off with altered mental status, dysfunction of the RAS, the reticular activating system, or cerebral hemispheres interferes, interferes with consciousness. Remember, we talked about this in anatomy, physiology, or patho, that in order for a patient to remain conscious, the RAS, RAS has to be working and at least one cerebral hemisphere. So if that's not the case, then the patient can have this be unresponsive or having altered mental status. Altered mental status, which is abbreviated AMS, you may also see it abbreviated or described as decreased level of consciousness or decreased LOC, uh, is an indication of a significant illness or injury. Again, that's something that's affecting the brain is causing this altered mental status. So we're always going to take that seriously. And causes of AMS may be structural or it can also be toxic metabolic. And we'll talk about some of those causes. So again, one of the causes of altered mental status may be structural. It includes things like a brain tumor, hemorrhage or bleeding into the cranium or bleeding actually in the brain tissue itself. Direct brain injury, self-inflicted gunshot wounds or gunshot wounds to the head where the, that brain matter is actually making contact with whatever that penetrating object is. It can also be caused by degenerative diseases of the brain and brain abscesses or infections as well. Some examples of toxic metabolic causes, hypoxia, uh, hypoxia, or starving or depriving that brain of oxygen. Anoxia means that there's no oxygen getting to the brain. Abnormal glucose conditions, and we'll talk more about diabetes, I believe, uh, next week. But those abnormal glucose conditions, that brain needs a constant supply of glucose. Liver failure where toxins are starting to build up. Same thing with kidney failure, toxins are starting to build up in the blood and poisonings as well. Some other causes, shock can cause altered mental status due to the hypoxia, lack of circulation, perfusion. Uh, overdoses or any other type of drugs that depress the central nervous system. Post-seizure state, also known as the post-dictal state infections, cardiac rhythm disturbances, and strokes as well. And we have another mnemonic to help us 
remember the most common causes of altered mental status in our patients, and that is AEIOU tips. So the A is alcohol intoxication. The E is epilepsy, meaning it's a seizure causing the altered mental status. The first I is insulin for diabetics. The O is oxygen, hypoxia. The U is uremia, or the buildup of toxins in the blood. I is the second, sorry, T is trauma. Second I is infection. First P is psychiatric causes. The second P is poisonings or overdoses. And the S is shock or stroke. So our assessment-based approach for altered mental status. We're going to start with our scene size up. Again, maybe dealing with a medical or a trauma patient. If it is a trauma, we're going to look for the mechanism of injury, give us that index of suspicion. We're also, if it's a medical, we're going to look for the nature of illness, any clues that could be telling us what could be going on with our patient. Make sure we determine, identify all of the patients that were involved. Especially for medical patients, look at the patient's medications. Bring them with us to the hospital. Again, we can learn a lot, especially from a non-a patient that can't talk to us by looking at their medications and knowing their medical history. If it is the patient is in a hazardous environment, again, make sure that we're taking steps to safely remove the patient from that hazardous environment. And again, don't knowingly go into a hazardous environment without proper training or PPE. Moving on to our primary assessment. If trauma is involved, we're immediately going to stabilize the spine. If trauma is not involved, we'll move on, get our general impression as soon as we lay eyes on the patient. As we get at patient side, we're going to assess for the airway, make sure the airway is patent. Breathing, check breathing, make sure they're breathing adequately on their own. If they are breathing adequately on their own, then we assess the need for oxygenation. If they're not breathing adequately on their own, then we're going to immediately begin ventilating the patient with the BBN. After breathing and oxygenation is taken, taken care of, then we move on to assess circulation on the patient. From our primary assessment, we move into our secondary assessment. Set, full set of vital signs, history, including sample. You can do a physical exam on the patient. Complete head-to-toe may need to be done. Again, it's going to be very dependent on what's going on with the patient. If this is a trauma patient, then we are going to do a complete head-to-toe because ultramental status is an indication of a significant mechanism of injury. Medical patient, if we don't immediately know what's causing that altered mental status, then we can also do a complete head-to-toe. Things that we want to try to determine, what were the signs and symptoms prior to the altered mental status and how did that change? Was the patient complaining of anything before they went unresponsive or started having altered mental status? Was it a gradual onset or a very quick and sudden change in the patient's mentation? And again, is this trauma? Was any type of trauma involved? Did they fall, hit their head, car crash, whatever the case may be? Did witnesses or bystanders on scene witness any type of seizure 
uh, seizure-like behavior. If this was a traumatic cause, things that we might find, obvious indications of trauma, he kept BTLS on the patient. <clears throat> Abnormal respiratory pattern or heart rate, unequal pupils, you may see uh, high blood pressures or very low blood pressures, depending on what's causing the altered mental status. Discolorization around the eyes behind the ears, uh, bilateral black eyes known as raccoon eyes, or bruising behind the ears is known as battle signs, which are going to indicate a basilar skull fracture. Pale, cool, moist skin. Or the patient may be posturing as well, flexion or extension. Remember, flexion is uh, decerebrate posturing, extension, I'm sorry, got that wrong. Flexion is decorticate posturing, extension is decerebrate posture. If it's a medical patient that's causing the ultramental status, things that we may find, we may see, still see very abnormal bottle signs may have diaphoretic skin, or if it's, say it's a heat-related emergency, we may have hot and dry skin. Wide range of pupillary changes can be pinpoint, which may indicate a narcotics or opiate overdose, midsize or unequal pupils. Patient may complain of or have, has been complaining of a stiff neck. Again, we talked about Infections of the brain or the lining of the brain can cause uh, ultramental status as well. Things like meningitis, patients may complain of a stiff, painful neck. May see lacerations or bite marks to the patient's tongue, biting of the patient's tongue. The patient biting their tongue is very common during seizures. May have incontinence of the uh, bladder or bowel, may have lost control of it. Uh, again, those are also, especially bladder is very common during seizure activity as well. And we also may get abnormal blood glucose readings, either extremely high or low readings <clears throat> on the glucometer. So our treatment for altered mental status. Again, if we do suspect trauma, we're going to have to maintain spinal precautions in the patient, so manually holding C-spine at least initially. Other than that, a lot of it's going to be supportive. We're going to make sure that the patient's ABCs are taken care of, that the patient airway is open. If we're hearing gurgling respirations or there is fluid in the airway, we take immediate action to go ahead and suction out that airway. Maintain those SATs at or above 94% for medical, 95% for trauma. Again, if the patient's not breathing adequately on their own, we're going to ventilate the patient with a BVM. For altered mental status, again, we talked about blood sugar changes can be a cause for altered mental status. So for any patient that is having altered mental status, and that's going to be even more especially true for medical patients, medical patients with altered mental status, we need to and have to check a blood sugar just to rule that out as a cause. Proper positioning of the patient based on patient's condition. Consider ALS backup. If we are having a hard time controlling that airway, 
or if we are having uh, breathing issues, patient's blood sugar is extremely low, but we cannot give them oral glucose because of their altered mental status, things like that, go ahead and request paramedic backup or ALS backup. And then transport the patient to the hospital. Again, a lot of this for just altered mental status, most of it is just going to be supportive measures. During transport, we're going to perform our reassessment. Any altered mental status, the patient is going to be characterized as unstable. So we will reassess a patient every five minutes, looking for any changes in the patient's mental status and paying very close attention to those ABCs. Because again, those ABCs can change very quickly. Again, vital signs every five minutes, make sure that we are recording those vital signs and looking for trends in the patient's condition. All right, moving on to stroke. And again, with altered mental status, a lot of it's just going to be supportive trying to find the cause. If we find a cause, now that cause of that altered mental status, we may be able to treat that. One of those causes of altered mental status may be a stroke. So stroke. Stroke is a sudden disruption of blood flow to the brain that results in brain cell damage. So there's something that is preventing a portion of that brain from receiving blood flow. Stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States, and about 795,000 people each year suffer a stroke. Proper assessment, care, and transport to an appropriate facility can make the difference between life and death or between successful recovery and permanent damage for the stroke victim. So just very similar to a heart attack, time is going to be brain tissue in this case. The faster we get this patient to the appropriate facility, the faster they can start treatment on the patient, the better chances of a full recovery that patient is going to have. And this is one of those conditions, if we suspect a stroke, meet certain criteria, it's within a stroke window, a certain time frame, then it's always going to be lots and sirens to the hospital. Again, time is critical. So one thing that we're going to be looking for uh, during our assessment is any type of neurological deficit uh, that a stroke can cause. So a deficiency in nerve system function is called a neurological deficit. And a neurological deficit is an indication of a problem affecting the central nervous system. So some examples of neurological deficits, again, things that we should be on the lookout for, includes paralysis. And now when we're dealing with the stroke or the, the brain inside the skull, when we talk about paralysis, we're typically talking about on one side of the body versus the other side. Altered mental status, slurred speech, weakness, again, typically to one side of the body or numbness to one side of the body. Strokes are also referred to as cerebral vascular accidents, which oftentimes you'll hear a stroke abbreviated as a CVA. So an acute stroke, again, time is critical factor in stroke management. American Heart Association does do some stroke outreach. They have a chain of survival for stroke victims as well. And that chain of survival is 
A is recognition by the public. Somebody, and they do a lot of outreach trying to teach lay people what the stroke signs and symptoms are. So early recognition by the public, recognition by EMS dispatch resulting in rapid EMS response, dispatcher asking those questions. If they suspect a stroke based on the questions they're asking, make sure that they are sending the appropriate resources and they're sending them rapidly. Rapid EMS response assessment, us recognizing that the patient is having a stroke, early notification to the hospital that we're transporting to, and rapid transport to the hospital. For the hospital, they need to be able to rapidly diagnose a stroke and start immediate treatment of that stroke at the facility as well. So for us at the EMT level, we can make a significant difference in patient outcome with our stroke management. For us, even at the paramedic level, that stroke management is going to be just, hey, this is a stroke, recognizing it's a stroke and recognizing we need to get this patient to the hospital as quickly as possible. American Heart Association came out with a uh, mnemonic uh, fast for labor rescuers, us, anybody really, to quickly recognize possible stroke symptoms. So the, and it's the things that we're looking for. We're looking for facial drooping, arm weakness, speech difficulty, and the T is if you see any of those, you need to immediately call 911. And we'll talk about our stroke assessment, the tools that we use uh, coming up. So pathophysiology of a stroke, what's going on in the body during a stroke? So the cerebral arteries are responsible for delivering a constant supply of oxygen and glucose to the brain. So much like the, uh, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> coronary arteries feed the heart, the cerebral arteries are going to feed the brain. And if there's something that's causing a disruption of blood flow to the brain, it's going to result in ischemia. So a portion of that brain that's not receiving blood flow is going to become ischemic. And ischemic cells become electrically silent. So they're going to stop working until circulation is restored. So that portion of the brain is getting starved of oxygen because we're not getting good blood flow to it. So that part of the brain is going to go electrically silent. So whatever part of that brain is affected, whatever body parts in the body, that portion of the brain controls, they're not going to be working appropriately. If we get circulation restored quick enough back to that uh, ischemic part, then hopefully they can make a full recovery with no deficits. The longer it goes, the more likely they are to have permanent deficits. And that area of silent cells in the brain is referred to as the ischemic penumbra. So there are three different causes of strokes that we can see uh, or that we may a patient may present with. We can have a thrombus causing the stroke. A thrombus is a blockage of a vessel by a thrombus or a blood clot which forms at the narrow arteries inside the brain. We can also have an embolism. 
embolism is a blood clot or plaque travels through a blood vessel until it just lodges in the brain, blocking blood flow. So a thrombus and an embolism, in many cases, are blood clots. The difference between a thrombus and an embolism is a thrombus, thrombus forms at the site. It does not break free, does not travel. An embolism formed somewhere else, broke free, and traveled to the brain in this case. So, but again, thrombus and embolism are both clots or, or something that's causing a blockage. The other, the third type of, of stroke is going to be a hemorrhagic stroke, which is going to be caused by a rupture of a blood vessel, again, preventing blood from getting to a portion of the brain. And again, causes of stroke, we can have embolisms or thrombus. And again, those are just blood clots. Thrombus formed somewhere else, broke free, and got stuck there. Thrombus does not break free. It formed and stays there. And then a hemorrhagic stroke is caused by bleeding. So for an embolism and a thrombus, we refer to those as ischemic strokes. And then... Example of an ischemic infarction and collateral flow. So again, this portion of the brain has that thrombus. So this portion of the brain is not getting good circulation. Again, the body recognizes that and is going to try to whatever it can to preserve itself. So we can get these collateral arteries starting to form. These are temporary arteries that are doing whatever it can to get a portion of that brain <clears throat> adequate amounts of blood flow. So again, there's three causes of stroke, but there's only two real types of stroke. We have ischemic strokes. These are due to blockage. So if it's a thrombus, thrombolytic stroke, or an embolic stroke, it doesn't matter. We classify that as ischemic. That is due to a blockage of a cerebral artery. And we have hemorrhagic strokes. These are due to bleeding from a ruptured blood vessel. So again, strokes are either going to be ischemic or hemorrhagic. <clears throat> For us in the pre-hospital setting, there's no real sure, good surefire way to determine the difference between an ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke. The only way for them to definitively tell this is going to be with a CT. CT scans have to determine the difference. And your treatment is going to vary very dramatically depending on what the cause is. If it's a ischemic stroke, a blockage, they're going to give them clot-busting medications to try to break free that thrombus, that embolism. Well, you don't want to give somebody that's bleeding into the brain medication that's going to prevent clotting from occurring because it's going to make it worse. So this is oftentimes the very first thing the hospitals are going to do with a suspected stroke is they're going to take a CT on it, try to determine what the cause is. Most hospitals, most stroke centers, especially Lubbock's pretty good about it, if we bring in a victim of a stroke, we tell the hospital, hey, we're coming with a stroke, we're probably going straight back to CT, not even stopping in the ER. We're going to take the patient directly to CT to get that CT done very quickly. So what that doctor is going to be looking for on that CT, again, they're trying to determine the difference between an ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke. The CT will look, in most cases, will look absolutely normal in an ischemic stroke. You're not, oftentimes, will not be able to see the clot from an ischemic stroke. 
and how they diagnose the stroke is by patient presentation, not, not so much lab work or imaging. So the main thing they're doing, taking a CT, uh, a CT on a stroke victim is just trying to rule out that it's a hemorrhagic stroke. If it isn't, they don't see bleeding, they're assuming it's an ischemic stroke and they're gonna stop, start the clot busting medication. So ischemic strokes occurs when a cerebral artery is blocked by a clot, can also be caused by other foreign matter, matter but more, most oftentimes it's gonna be a clot. And again, can be either a thrombus, forms at the site, doesn't break free, doesn't travel, or an embolism that forms somewhere else and did break free and travel. Ischemic strokes are much more common than hemorrhagic strokes. 80% of strokes are ischemic. And these patients with an ischemic stroke may be eligible to receive fibrinolytic or clot-busting medications. Again, they're going to give them medic medication to try to break up that clot to restore blood flow to that portion of the brain. TPA is the most common drug that is used for clot busting for strokes. So a patient is going to receive TPA. Atrial fib, which is an irregular heart uh, rhythm, can precipitate an ischemic stroke. Patients that have been diagnosed for, with AFib are at a very high, they are at a much higher risk for clots, embolisms. And signs and symptoms of an ischemic stroke can range from very or very minorly, minimally symptomatic to complete paralysis, complete unresponsiveness as well. Again, it's just gonna be very dependent on where the clot is, which part of the brain and how much of the brain is affected by that reduction in blood flow. Hemorrhagic strokes, on the other hand, again, those are gonna result from a ruptured or a weakened cerebral artery. A risk factor for a hemorrhagic stroke is going to be chronic high blood pressure. That chronic pressure on those arteries weaken them over time. Again, the, and again, at some point they may rupture. Hemorrhagic strokes are least less common than uh, ischemic strokes. They only account for roughly 10 to 20% of all strokes. And hemorrhagic strokes are usually caused by an aneurysm, again, which is a weakened arterial wall that starts to balloon out and then can rupture, or it can be a arterial venous malformation, which is abbreviated AVM. This is where an artery diverts blood directly into a vein, bypasses the capillaries. At that area where it, where it connects at that AVM is generally weaker and more prone to rupture than anywhere else, uh, than any other blood vessels. Signs and symptoms, again, are gonna be dependent on the area of the brain where the hemorrhage occurs. Common signs and symptoms of a hemorrhagic stroke include nausea and vomiting, headaches, decreased level of consciousness. And again, for us in the pre-hospital setting, we're not going to be able to really distinguish the difference between the two strokes in the field. That has to be done in the hospital with ACT. Treatment for either or is going to be the exact same. 
So signs and symptoms of a stroke. If the left hemisphere of the brain is affected, things that we're going to likely see in the patient. Patient can have aphasia, which is the inability to speak or understand speech. We can have or either or. Receptive aphasia is the ability to speak, but unable to understand speech. Expressive aphasia is the inability to speak correctly, but able to understand speech. So they're going to have speech problems. Either they're not understanding what we're saying, more likely they're going to try to talk to us and we're not going to understand what they're saying. They're unable to form the words. The right hemisphere of the brain can cause paralysis of the neck muscles, the throat muscles, and we can have dysarthria, which is able to understand but hard to be understood. And again, that is due to why they're having difficulty speaking in that case is because the neck muscles that help generate speech and sound are getting paralyzed. Other signs and symptoms of a stroke. Again, we can have alterations in consciousness. Patient may just have slight confusion or it can be completely unresponsive or they may not have any altered mental status. They can be completely conscious, alert, well-oriented and still be suffering from a stroke. Again, paralysis typically on one side of the body Loss of speech, slurred speech, difficulty speaking. You can also possibly have unilateral blindness, where they can only have blindness in one eye, but can see perfectly fine out of the other eye. Drooling, again, due to paralysis of the face muscles and neck muscles, they're having a difficulty, difficult time swallowing. Can have induced seizures, especially hemorrhagic strokes. Headaches, can have unequal pupils. One side is normal, the other side is extremely dilated, non-responsive to light. High blood pressure with slowing pulses. Typically see that more in hemorrhagic strokes and dizziness as well. We need to note that strokes can mimic other conditions as well. And the most common one that it can mimic is hypoglycemia, especially in the elderly patients, which are more prone to strokes. Hypoglycemia can cause signs and symptoms of a stroke, facial drooping, slurred speech, weakness or paralysis on one side of the body. So with that being said, every time we run on a suspected stroke, we need to go ahead and take their blood sugar to rule out that being the cause of their signs and symptoms. So any mental status patient or any patient that has stroke-like symptoms, we need to go ahead and check a blood sugar to rule that out as a cause. Seizures, that postictal state after a seizure, patient can also have stroke-like signs and symptoms. Subdural or epidural bleeding, it, where it's not a cerebral artery that is ruptured, uh, but we're having bleeding somewhere else inside of the skull. And even intoxication can cause stroke-like symptoms as well. So again, don't write it off. Write off the patient as just being drunk without doing a good thorough assessment because there is a possibility they may be having a stroke. A stroke patient will often suffer paralysis affecting the face, extremities on one side of the body. 
So in this case, this patient is, has suffered a previous stroke and this patient does have permanent deficits. So we can see the facial drooping on one side of the body. Also note that she has, she's in that type of sling or whatever the hell that thing is. That is likely because she's paralyzed on that side of the body. So again, she suffered a stroke and has permanent neurological deficit. So let's say this patient thinks she's having another stroke. She's going to meet all of the criteria for the stroke scale because she's already has pre-existing that pre-existing condition. So if we've already had somebody that's previously suffered a stroke and we suspect they may be having a stroke now, it's going to be very hard for us to determine if they truly are or not because they already have the signs and symptoms from their previous stroke. So again, it's going to be difficult to determine, is this just her chronic state or is this now an acute change? Makes sense kind of what I'm getting at? And it's just something for us to remember. Patients may also have what we refer to as a transient ischemic attack. And by transient, we mean doesn't last forever. It only lasts for a little while and then self-resolves. So transient ischemic attacks abbreviated the TIA, as TIA. And TIA is, may also be referred to as a mini-stroke. So since it's transient, patient has stroke-like symptoms, but in order for it to be diagnosed as a TIA, those stroke-like symptoms have to self-resolve within 24 hours. Most of the time, vast majority of TIAs, the stroke-like symptoms are going to resolve themselves within five minutes. However, we treat every TIA as a true emergency. TIAs can be a warning sign of a larger stroke. 10 to 20% of patients that have uh, had a TIA has had a full-blown stroke in the 90 days, half of these within 24 to 48 hours of that TIA. Not only that, as long as that patient is symptomatic, as long as that patient is having stroke-like symptoms, we have no way of knowing if it's going to self-resolve on its own or not, so we're going to treat it like it's a full-blown stroke. Where TIAs really come into play for us is patient had stroke-like symptoms, but they went away prior to our arrival. Or the patient is having stroke-like symptoms and they go away while they're with us. But for us, as long as the patient is still having stroke-like symptoms, we have to assume that it's a stroke because we don't know if it's going to go away or not. Most of them don't go away, so we're treating it as a full-blown stroke. But if we do run on that patient, they dialed 911 with stroke-like symptoms, and they said it went away on its own before we get there. So now we are suspecting a TIA because they're asymptomatic now and had stroke-like symptoms previously. We always encourage those patients, they need to go to the hospital to be evaluated by a physician. Hopefully, they can do some type of treatment to prevent them from having that full-blown stroke. So strokes versus TIAs. Again, TIA will have the exact same signs and symptoms as a stroke. Symptoms disappear from a TIA on their own, usually within one hour. Again, the vast majority of them will totally disappear within five minutes. Care for a TIA is the same as a stroke. And again, as long as that patient's symptomatic, we treat it as a full-blown stroke. So we do not know if it's going to self-resolve or not. You can also have a cryptogenic stroke. 
It's a recent addition as a third type of stroke. It, it still fits in as an ischemic stroke that can be attributed, cannot be attributed to embolism, thrombosis, or small artery disease. So patient has stroke-like symptoms and they have no idea what's causing those stroke-like symptoms, but it's thought to be brought on by atrial fib. And again, for us, it does not matter. Our treatment is, is going to be identical. So our assessment-based approach for strokes and TIAs, the medical conditions, so we determine the nature of the problem, note where the patient is found, try to determine is there a possibility there was any trauma along with that stroke. Moving into our primary assessment, again, airway is going to be very important, suction the airway as needed, position the patient properly, make sure the patient's airway is open. They're having a hard time maintaining their own airway. Use airway adjuncts as needed. Once the airway is taken care of, assess for breathing, the rate, rhythm, patterns. If they're not breathing adequately on their own, again, then we ventilate them with the BBM. If they are breathing adequately on their own, we apply O2 to maintain SpO2 sets at or above 94%. And remember, it was chest pain or ACS. Acute <clears throat> coronary syndrome or strokes, definitely where we do not want the O2 sats at 100%. So 94 to 99% for a stroke, but not at 100% O2 sats. Findings that may indicate the patient is having a stroke sudden weakness of the face or the extremities, trouble speaking or difficulty seeing, problems walking, loss of balance or coordination. Uh, patient that had an unsteady gait, standing or walking, referred to that as the patient's gait. So having an unsteady gait is common sign symptom if the patient's able to even stand up and walk. And patient may also complain of having a very sudden severe headache at the same time these signs and symptoms started. During our secondary assessment of a suspected stroke victim, we are going to perform a stroke screening tool. There's several of them out there. The most common, the one that almost every EMS agency uses, is going to be the Cincinnati Stroke Scale. But you can also have the Los Angeles Stroke Scale, the Miami Emergency Neurologic Deficit, the RACE, and the LVO. Again, Cincinnati Stroke Scale is by far the most common. So the Cincinnati, there's three items that we're looking for for the Cincinnati Stroke Scale. The first thing that we're looking at is facial drooping. So we have the patient to smile, show us their teeth, and we're looking for symmetry. If one side is drooping or is not moving as much as the other side, then that's considered a positive for facial drooping. After we assess for facial drooping, we move on to assess for arm drip. We ask the patient to close their eyes and hold both arms out with palms up. And it's abnormal if the arms do not move equally. So check for facial drooping. We move on. We're going to assess for arm drift. We're going to have the patient hold their arms out in front of them, palms up, and close their eyes. They should stay relatively together if, it's, if everything is good. If they're having a stroke, one side is probably going to start falling or drifting, and it's also going to start pronating and rotating around as well. Oftentimes, it's very dramatic and obvious if the arm drift is positive. 
And the third component is slurred speech. We ask the patient to say something like, the sky is blue in Cincinnati, or something similar, and it's going to be, again, abnormal if the words are slurred or confused or garbled or can't understand what they're saying. And with Cincinnati Stroke Scale, if any one of those items is positive, then they're positive for a suspected stroke. Any deficit is considered a positive stroke score. So we, we are now treating a suspected stroke. We need to let that hospital know early on we're coming in with a suspected stroke. For documentation, it's very important that we document patient was positive, had a positive Cincinnati, patient had positive facial drooping and slurred speech, but negative arm drift or whatever that combination is, we need to make sure we're documenting specifically what we witnessed. So again, three items that we're looking at. First one is facial drooping. So have the patient smile, show us their teeth. Again, this case would be negative. This is good symmetry. So we don't suspect facial drooping. Compare it to this side where this patient does have facial drooping. This side you can see is rising, this side not so much. You can even see the muscle tone in her cheeks compared to this side as well. So we have positive facial droop. Again, that enough, that right there on its own would lead us to suspect a stroke. Another one, again, is that arm drift. If the arms stay the same, stay where they're at, that's negative. We're not suspecting a stroke in that test anyway. Uh, and again, oftentimes in this case, you'll see the arm drift or fall down and start pronating as it's falling down as well. So this, again, would be positive uh, arm drift. Again, if any one of them is positive, then we suspect a stroke. And again, the third component is going to be slurred speech. Make sure we obtain a history from the patient. That includes a full sample. With strokes, it is critical that we determine the time the patient was last normal. The reason being is if it is a ischemic stroke and they do need those clot busting medications, it has to be within a certain window. We refer to that as a stroke window is three hours of onset. So if their signs and symptoms started less than three hours ago, they're gonna be able to receive clot busting medications. If it's outside that three windows, then they're probably not going to be a candidate for clot busting medication. And many hospitals are now starting to extend that stroke window. However, for us, for testing purposes, that stroke window is three hours. So when we're obtaining the last time seen normal, we are not going to document patient was last seen normal 30 minutes ago. They, in this case, we, we can document that, but we also need to follow that up with the exact time. Patient was last seen normal at 11.22 a.m. this morning. We want to document the exact time, either the signs and symptoms started or whenever the last normal time was. So let's say I go to bed at 10 o'clock last night and I wake up at 8 o'clock in the morning today with stroke-like symptoms. When was my last normal time? It's probably going to be 10 o'clock in the morning. So for a heads up for all y'all out there, having a stroke in your sleep is the absolute worst time to have a stroke because if we don't know when that last normal time was uh, or if it's outside that window, you're going to not be eligible to receive TPA. But same condition, same situation. I went to bed at 10, woke up at 8 with stroke clock symptoms, but I got up to use the restroom 
at four o'clock this morning was absolutely fine. So now my last my last normal time would be four o'clock this morning. Go ahead and do your physical exam. Again, hypoglycemia can mimic a stroke. So any suspected stroke, always obtain a blood sugar and our baseline bottle size. Treatment for a stroke, there's nothing we can do for it. It's going to require hospital intervention. Even at the paramedic level, there's nothing we can do for it. So it's going to be nothing but supportive measures. ABCs, airway, suction is needed. If the patient's not breathing adequately, ventilate them. Maintain O2 sets at or above 94%, 299, but not at 100. If the patient, proper positioning is going to be important as well. If the patient's conscious, we don't need to ventilate. We typically want to put the patient in a semi-fallish position with the head only slightly elevated, no more than 30 degrees. That's in case if it, it is a bleed that's causing the stroke, that is going to take some of the pressure off of the brain. So again, suspected strokes, if we can, we elevate with the head slightly elevated, no more than 30 degrees. If they're unresponsive, we can also put them in a recovery position as well, or again, same position with their head slightly elevated, no more than 30 degrees. Again, check blood glucose level. If their sugar is less than 70, then we're no longer really suspecting a stroke. Now we're suspecting hypoglycemia as a cause. If the patient's sugar is less than 70, they're conscious enough, able to swallow a medication, then we can administer uh, oral glucose. If the patient is altered to the point where we don't trust or don't feel comfortable giving, giving them an oral medication, now we need to immediately contact ALS Backup, who can start the IV and give them the glucose through an IV. Take steps to protect those paralyzed extremities. We don't want them falling off the cot while removing the patient and breaking their arm, getting it caught on something. Rapid transport to the appropriate facility. Again, if it's inside that stroke window, we truly suspect a stroke, it's always going to be CO3 transport. Time is that critical for stroke. We also need to transport the patient to a stroke facility. In Lubbock, the highest stroke facility is going to be Covenant. So UMC's protocol is basically any stroke victim has to go to Covenant. And caution, be cautious of what you say and how you act. Just because the patient can't talk to us or may appear unresponsive does not mean that they are not fully aware of what's going on and can understand and hear what you are saying. But that should be the case for any patient, regardless of what's going on. We should always be respectful and not say anything appropriate in front of a patient. Reassessment every five minutes. Trend, consider transport decisions. Do we need ALS backup? And again, in most cases, probably not. If the patient's ABCs are stable, vital signs are stable, they just have a stroke, again, ALS is not going to do anything different than we are. So it's going to be more important to get them to the hospital than waiting around for ALS. Again, make sure that we are transporting to the appropriate facility. One that does have is a stroke facility and does obviously have a CT machine. And we do need to let the hospital know as soon as we realize we're coming in with a stroke, that's going to allow them to clear CT for up for us and get those drugs ready to go again, trying to save as much time as we can. Headaches. Headaches, again, are a very common medical complaint. The headache itself may be a condition. 
or it can be a symptom of another condition as well. And again, headaches can kind of range from being harmless, just a discomfort, or it can indicate a very serious medical condition as well. Vascular headaches results in dilation of the vessels of the brain. This includes things like migraines, headaches that are brought on by high blood pressure. These headaches are often described as a throbbing type of pain. Often depends on how severe it is, can also cause nausea and vomiting. And the patients of uh, vascular headaches also do have oftentimes have sensitivity to light. So try to make them comfortable. Dim the lights in your ambulance or completely turn them off if you can. Cluster headaches occur repeatedly in clusters. They are thought to have a vascular origin. Normally that pain is kind of on one side of the head. Tension headaches caused by muscle contractions of the neck and scalp. Pain is often described as a tight or squeezing type of pain. Organic traction or inflammatory headaches, these are symptoms of other conditions. Can be a bad headache because the tumor is putting pressure on the brain and the head. Infections, sinus infections can cause headaches pretty, pretty commonly as well. Strokes or other disorders as well. So if we run on a patient that's having a headache, some assessments that we need to perform, we're going to suspect a serious underlying condition with any of the following findings. So a patient has a headache, but they also have altered mental status. Obviously, that's something serious going on. They're having motor or sensory deficits. Again, that's going to be more indicative of like a stroke. Headache with behavioral changes. Headache that also has a seizure. First experience of an extremely bad headache that's kind of basically making them non-functional with abrupt onset. Again, that may indicate something more serious. Worsening of the pain, coughing, sneezing, or bending over. Fever or stiff neck, again, may indicate things like meningitis. Or if the patient does have chronic headaches, but this one they say is completely different, feels a lot worse, then that may be of concern as well. But again, just a typical headache is typically nothing to worry about. It's if it's a symptom of another major underlying condition. So care for headaches for us. Again, it's primarily going to be supportive. ABCs, suction, make sure the patient's breathing adequately, supplemental O2 to maintain O2 sets at or above 94%, position of comfort, be a cautious patient may have a seizure, and transport the patient to the hospital. Again, headaches typically are pretty benign. It's going to be supportive measures and transport. So cause, summary, causes of altered mental status include structural and metabolic toxic causes. Remember, strokes are either categorized as ischemic from clots or hemorrhagic from bleeding. Time is of the essence in the management of, of strokes. That stroke window for an ischemic stroke is three hours. If it's within that three hours, then that patient is eligible or could be eligible for clot-busting medication. And remember, clot-busting medication is only given for ischemic strokes, will never be given for hemorrhagic stroke. Use a validated stroke scale. Again, we use Cincinnati. And a headache can be a condition in of itself or 
it can be an underlying symptom or a symptom of an underlying condition. Okay. Any questions over 